Good morning, Grace Covenant. Good morning. If you could turn, take your Bibles with me and turn to Mark chapter 1, if you would, please. We're going to begin a new book together. We finished up Ephesians a couple weeks ago. And as I looked through and prayed through what we should go through next, I couldn't um, stop thinking about going through a gospel. And as I got down to which one, um, I think it should start with uh, what I think is, my opinion is, is the first gospel that was written. So we're going to begin with Mark, the gospel of Mark. And if you're there, we're going to tackle the first eight verses today of the gospel of Mark. We'll have an introduction. Um, I do apologize for not having sermon notes available. My printer was not functional this morning, and I didn't have the time or the technical know-how to play with it at that particular moment. So we will try to make sure that doesn't happen next week. Um, my wife is smirking because she knows how to make it work, but I don't, and she was gone already, and it just, it is what it is. So um, no sermon notes today, but um, we do have the book of Mark to go through here and start today. So we're going to have a time of introduction, um, and then we'll get started in the text. So before we get there, I would like to read the verses together in honor of the one who gave us this word. So if you would stand with me, we're going to read the first eight verses of the Gospel according to Mark. Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through, 1 through 8 reads, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the region of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. And John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and was eating locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching, saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for sending your Son. We are so thankful for the record that Mark has here um, by the inspiration of the Spirit recorded for us to read all these centuries later that we can have a glimpse into Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, and how he came and redeemed us, um, those whom you've chosen to, to give that redemption to. He came and redeemed his particular people, the flock of God, and we are so thankful that we get to study that and begin this journey today. I pray that you will remove any hindrances from me, that you remove any nerves, and that uh, the, uh, all that is communicated will glorify you today. In your holy name I pray. Amen. All right, you can be seated. So I always like to give some background. Um, it helps us with interpretation and understanding uh, a particular book. Um, so we're going to spend several minutes on the background, the, the, the social context, the ideas around Mark, um, and some historical context, and then we'll dig into the passage itself. Um, so historically, uh, Mark, believe it or not, was actually considered to be subpar, um, especially for the synoptics. In fact, Augustine, many, many, many centuries ago, said Mark imitated Matthew like a lackey and is regarded as his abbreviator. Wow, tell us how you really feel. So for centuries, Mark has been considered the sub-gospel compared to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In fact, many people think that Mark really ripped off Matthew. Um, 
In the last 200 years, however, that opinion has dramatically, dramatically changed um, the theological landscape uh, due to manuscripts, multiple manuscripts found um, of Mark that date back earlier than Matthew. In fact, there's been so much study, theological study and academic study into Mark now that the majority of people, myself included, actually think that Mark was produced first, um, that it was actually the first gospel produced out of all of the synoptic gospels. Um, and that Matthew and Mark, and excuse me, Matthew and Luke actually used Mark as a source for writing their own Gospels. Um, that's where they get a lot of the same information. Um, I happen to think that myself. Uh, if you if you dig in there and study, it's a very very interesting time of study. Um, but that started at about the mid 19th century, and there was a lot of time that, <clears throat> for for many centuries, that people misunderstood the writing style of Mark. Um, if you think about Mark, he writes in a lot of threes. Um, which was not considered in a Greek culture um, sophisticated writing or from a Latin perspective sophisticated writing. Uh, but he actually writes with what's now known as, as studies over the last couple hundred years. And just as a side note, there's been more expansion of theological study and manuscripts found in the last 200 years than the rest of church history combined. Um, so that's where a lot of this comes from. But Mark actually writes with what's called an intercolation. Um, and it's called the sandwich method of writing. It just is a simpler way of saying it. And basically, he, he builds a sandwich, and he says one thing, says something totally different, and the meat comes back to the same thing he said before. If you know Mark well enough to know the story of the fig tree, so he curses the fig tree, does something completely different, and then comes back to the fig tree again. The meat is actually there to help translate the loaves of bread, the, the slices of bread, if you want to think of it that way. And so I'll point these out as we go through. Um, Mark is also a master of irony. Uh, it's absolutely amazing to see his ironic statements throughout his gospel. Um, and it, there's very deep theological teaching from Mark from his ironic statements. Um, so we'll be pointing those out as we go along as well. It's thought that Mark wrote this um, in the late 60s AD, right after Peter's death. Um, Mark has primary source uh, of Peter. Now, the reason why we know that is because Mark is written by the John Mark from Acts, the one that traveled with Paul and Barnabas for quite some time, separated from them about the middle of Acts and didn't come back. And what, he, what Mark actually did is he went to Rome and lived with Peter there and heard him preach for years and had lots of intimate discussions with Peter. Most of Mark's source information came from the Apostle Peter. And you'll notice that, if you guys remember, um, Peter was very rambunctious, quick, made very quick decisions. He pulled the sword, right? He told, he told Jesus, no, no, you're not going to go die. Um, Satan, or Jesus had to tell him, get behind me, Satan. Uh, you remember how just rambunctious he was? That's Mark's writing style, doesn't it? He says immediately more times in his first chapter than I think some of the other gospel writers combined. He's got this quick pace, this, this quick language. He, he's, not, he's to the point. And he moves very, very quickly. Uh, reminds us very much of Peter. Uh, this gospel is written to the Gentiles, Romans specifically. Um, if you notice throughout the gospel of Mark, anytime he mentions something from the Hebrew, he gives Latinisms or the Latin translation or Greek translation of that meaning. So if he mentions a Hebrew dollar, he'll mention the Latin side of it or the Greek side of it so that Romans can understand it. Um, this is intended to be read by Gentile Romans primarily. Um, as such, you'll see very few Old Testament quotes in Mark. We're going to deal with one today, but it's very, very few compared to the other Gospels. Um, in fact, 
the uh, historian Eusebius says this about Mark. Mark became Peter's interpreter and wrote accurately all that he remembered, not indeed in order of the things that are done by the Lord. For Mark had not heard the Lord, nor had he followed him. But later on, as I said, followed Peter, who used to give teaching as necessity demanded, but not making, as it were, an arrangement of the Lord's oracles, so that Mark did nothing wrong in thus writing down single points as he remembered them. For to one thing he gave attention, to leave out nothing of what he had heard, and to make no false statements in them. I read that to you because Eusebius is an ancient church historian that would have been writing shortly after Mark's life, and so he would have had firsthand information on Mark's priority and how he preached. Because many of us uh, throughout church history, um, even some of us maybe before understanding the importance of Mark, thought that Mark just kind of wrote at an odd pace, right? He jumped from thing to thing. Um, he wrote from point to point. If you've ever looked at a, at a, a harmony of the Gospels and you see Mark discusses this miracle here, but Matthew doesn't discuss it till like linear from a historical perspective, a timeline, till many days or months later or years later, and you have all this combobulation. Well, Eusebius, from a firsthand point, tells us that Mark was simply writing down what Peter had told him. And he was writing it down as he remembered. Peter was executed, hung upside down on a cross by his execution by the Romans in the early 60s AD. Mark wrote this in the late 60s AD, right before Jerusalem was destroyed. And so the reason why I'm giving you all this information is because we have to understand the historical context because the most important aspect of biblical interpretation is authorial intent. If we don't understand what the author wanted to tell us by inspiration of the Spirit, how can we understand what it truly means? Then we end up with some really out there interpretations. And so as we see, Mark truly is written in a beautiful fashion um, in, in his, his book as we go through it. I, I think his gospel will be absolutely wonderful for us to hear. This should take us about 60 sermons or so um, on the breakdown. There's one last thing that's a side note, and I want to address it now um, so that we have plenty of time to talk about it over the coming months. Um, if you turn to the back of Mark with me real fast, Mark chapter 16, just turn to the last chapter. Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. Many of you, most of you, probably all of you, Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20 is in brackets. And you likely have a little asterisk or a star or a footnote that says this is not found in the original manuscripts. I want to come right out and let you know, um, through textual criticism and a lot of the manuscripts that have been found in the last 200 years, this part of Mark has been determined to not be part of Mark's original autographs. In other words, it wasn't contained in Mark's original writing. I do not intend to preach Mark chapter 16, 9 through 20 when we get there. Um, I'm happy to discuss that with you, um, what textual criticism is, why I've chosen to do that. Um, but there are multiple reasons. One, um, it's not in the earliest manuscripts. In other words, the manuscripts that made this popular were used to translate into the King James Version, which is a fine version if that's what you prefer to use. But there are absolutely contained translation errors because the manuscripts that were used at that time in 1611 um, by, uh, um, by the translators were simply subpar. They just didn't have as much information. Um, and also, it simply does not fit the context of Mark. Um, if you read and stop at Mark chapter 16 and verse 8, you can see it ends as abruptly as Mark begins, which we'll talk about here in just a minute. And the rest of that simply does not fit 
into the book of Mark. Again, I'm happy to have that conversation with you. Um, there'll be small points throughout Mark that you'll see some what's called scribal editions. So this is considered a scribal edition. Um, and it's not considered to be in the original autograph of Mark. And I want to stay true to what the original autographs, those who wrote the scriptures, I want to stay as true as I can to them. And so when the information points that, hey, this was a scribal note added later in later years after he wrote the original manuscript, I want to make sure we, we're preaching what is in the original manuscript as best we can, if that makes sense. So um, I know that's more of a serious or heavy academic topic. I just wanted to bring it up now. So we had 60 sermons to talk about it before we get there, and I don't preach it, okay? Um, so please, by all means, bring that up um, at a later time if you'd like. Okay, so um, enough of the introduction. So the theme of Mark, the theme of Mark, and it, it may be on the slide, and I don't know, and you guys may have seen it earlier. The theme of Mark is the good news of Jesus compassionate Savior, warrior King, and Messiah Savior. We're going to see aspects of, of Jesus that are not displayed as quickly or as easily um, in other Gospels. In fact, Mark lets the actions of Jesus speak louder than his words. Um, he's considered uh, a display as a warrior. His, his power and authority over the demonic are seen all throughout the book of Mark. The key verse, if you like to write that down, is Mark chapter 1 and verse 15. And Jesus replies, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Throughout Mark, that is his point over and over and over again. Repent and believe the gospel. Christ is here. The Messiah is here. He has come. And so the key verse for Mark is chapter 1 and verse 15. If you are taking notes, and again, I apologize for not having the extra sheets here. Um, point number one is only two today. The prophecy made and the prophecy fulfilled. So I'm going to reread verses one through three of chapter one, the prophecy made. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So Mark begins with a clear statement. He indicates very, very clearly exactly the point of his writing, his book. This is the beginning of the gospel. This differs pretty heavily from Luke. Um, when he wrote both Luke and Acts, if you remember, he says, most honorable Theophilus. Um, he gives an introduction to who his reader is first. This is a different type of introduction that Mark uses, again, telling us about his his urgency, his immediacy. I, I want to get into the, to the crux of what I'm writing about. And so he begins with the beginning of the gospel. And Mark here is obviously having an allusion um, to the very first verse of the Old Testament, in the beginning, God. The beginning of the gospel. Just as God created the universe and all that exists in Genesis 1.1, Mark is saying Christ has come to create a new church. Christ is coming to create redemption, to create a new exodus, to create the things that he was sent to do. Now Mark wants his, his readers to, to really dig in here and see the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So right out of the gate, Mark says, the Son of God. This Jesus that I'm going to be writing about is in fact the Son of God. And in Mark chapter 15, verse 39, he makes a point. He's the only one to make this point. He makes the point that there was a centurion who was standing right in front of him at Christ's death, 
the centurion, he looked up at Christ and, and he breathed, as Christ breathed his last, he said, truly this man was God's son. And so Mark sets out to say, Jesus Christ is the son of God, writes all of these events, records what Peter had preached and taught and said, and then comes to the end and says, even the Romans were convinced. Now you remember who his audience is? The Romans. He makes a point to draw out. Peter would have had to have told him this. Peter was at the crucifixion, right? Do we all remember that? So Peter would have had to have told Mark, I heard the centurion himself look up at Christ, a Roman of all people, and say, this is the Son of God. So Mark bookends his books, beginning and end, with Jesus Christ being the Son of God, and he makes that point. And we are privileged today to start that journey to see Mark make this point. And it's a beautiful, beautiful point. It's been said that Mark's introduction of Jesus is no less momentous than the creation of the world, for in Jesus a new creation is at hand. And he takes special account to use the word gospel. Gospel in the Greek means good news. Even in the Old Testament, the, the word gospel means good news. It's euangelion, where we get our word evangelism or evangelistic. And this idea of good news to a Roman would have been one of victory. Would have been one of, of this is the word that, that the soldiers would use to report a victory in battle, where the runners would come back and say, I have Uangelion, I have good news coming from the front lines. But then when we think about that, that's a beautiful picture. That's a beautiful picture to the Romans that Christ brings the victory. And we would all say a hearty, hearty amen. But then we have the next context of good news, which is Isaiah 52, 17 and 61, 1 through 3. You can write those down. We're not going to turn there. I just wanted to reference the use of these words. But Isaiah 52, 7 and 61, 1 through 3, the good news there, that the word for good news, gospel there, is about salvation seen in Christ alone. So the same word in Hebrew that's used for good news of victory is used in Isaiah as the prophet speaks about the good news of Christ coming for the salvation of those who are his. So Mark is pulling no punches. He doesn't want you on the edge of your seat. As per the Roman culture, he's coming out and telling them what they need to know, when they need to know it, and how they should react to it. That was Roman culture. They didn't, they were, there was no fluff. There was no extra information. Um, there, there was a giving of information and the data and a, and a request to react to it. And so he's very much writing to them in this manner. Now, as we think about the prophecy given, we're, we're coming to some shadows that are going to be fulfilled in John the Baptist. So let's dig into verses 2 and 3. We're going to have a little bit of Old Testament uh, research here as well. But verses, verses 2 and 3 reads, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Mark is using a, another writing tool here. Again, as I, as I mentioned before, he was very much underestimated for centuries of church history. He's using another Jewish writing habit or, or, or um, tool here to draw the Jewish mind to specific passages of the Old Testament that would trigger a prophecy that he could then show was fulfilled. Um, so he wouldn't give an exact quote. So for example, um, if you want to even write this in the margin of your Bible, 
this is not an exact quote of Isaiah 40, verse 3. It's actually three different Old Testament prophecies mixed into one. The second part of verse 2 where it says, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. That's actually from Exodus chapter 23 and verse 20. Isaiah shows up in the term or the, the, the word, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. That's Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3. The last portion of his quote is from Malachi 3 verse 1. It says, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now, you might think to yourself, why does he say this quote's from Isaiah? In a Jewish mind, Isaiah is the foremost and biggest, best prophet. That's where they went to first. That was the major prophet. Um, all other prophets knelt down, if you will, to Isaiah. So in him, he's getting their attention, right? This is Isaiah that says, but he's mixing in other quotes from the Old Testament here. And we're going to talk about why here in just a minute. But if you'll notice, if you haven't read Mark in preparation for this, I encourage you to go home and just sit down. It doesn't take a real long time to get through Mark. It's about 16 chapters. But go home and read through, and you'll notice there's not nearly as many Old Testament quotes. There are, of course, Jews in Rome. So through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Mark is, is writing so that the Jews will understand what he's saying, and the Romans will understand what he's saying. Because overemphasizing Jewish history, like Matthew does, does it make sense to a Roman? Does a Roman care what the Jews thought about the Old Testament or in the Old Testament? Not one bit. Will that convince a Roman that Christ is the Messiah? Not one bit. But he knows that there will be some Jews reading his gospel, so he includes this so that they can understand who Christ is as well. And also, obviously, through God's divine providence, we can now look at both and see what Mark wrote and see what Malachi, Isaiah and Moses wrote, and see that Christ is the fulfillment. So, so God's providence, of course, is beautiful to see in that. So let's take each one of these quotes for what they mean, because the beauty within them, the, 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 what Mark is actually pointing to, the illusion that he's making is beyond beautiful, as I was digging in this week. I, I truly have been so excited this week to preach this message and see what God has done in, in Mark. So turn with me, if you will, to Exodus chapter 23 and verse 20. We're going to start there. Exodus chapter 23 and verse 20. So looking at Exodus 23, verse 20. I'm going to read that first verse. Behold, I'm going to send an angel before you to keep you along the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Now, I want to make sure and pause for just one moment because this prophecy in Mark, I'm going to go ahead and give you the punchline, is talking about John the Baptist. Okay, Mark is saying John the Baptist is coming. But his allusion to the messenger, because that's what John truly is, is the messenger of the Christ. He's, he's the one that prepares the way. He's the herald. He's the one that says the, the, the king is coming. But in, in explaining that, Mark is using places of the Old Testament that jogs the Jewish memory to understand that the person that the messenger is describing is so much more than what everyone may initially realize. So again, Exodus 23 and verse 20. Mark is drawing the attention of those who read this work back to this being about Jesus. Because if you continue to read in Exodus 23, you'll see that this is a description of the messenger. Angel in Hebrew, so verse 20 you'll see it says angel. 
you may be asking yourself, Josh, why do you keep saying messenger? Angel means messenger. The, the, the root word for um, angel actually does mean messenger. So in effect, this says, behold, I'm going to send a messenger before you to keep you along the way and bring you into the place where I have prepared. Keep watch of yourself before him and listen to his voice. And Moses goes on to record the instructions for the first exodus. Now, why would Mark point back to a messenger saying that there's someone coming, which would be Moses, that will lead you through the exodus in the desert? Why would Mark point back to that? What good does that do? Think about this for just a moment. We know in fulfillment of Christ's life and in what he came to fulfill, that Christ came to bring about and redeem the true sons of Abraham. That's the nation of Israel. So the nation of Israel was the foreshadow of the church. Moses is a foreshadow of Christ. Moses lived and and was there to show us the shadow of the substance that is Christ. Moses came to lead the people of God, i.e. the nation of Israel, on an exodus from bondage to freedom, to the promised land. And now when we think about the the substance that gave us that shadow, the substance, the antitype, you may have heard type and antitype, so the antitype of these shadows is Christ himself who came after a messenger, John the Baptist, to redeem the true Israel, the true spiritual seed of Abraham, and lead them on a new exodus away from bondage of sin and death. That is a a lot to look at. But Mark is coming out swinging. Look at the tool he's using to say so much in an allusion to a passage in Exodus. And that's not all he says. Back in Mark, he then goes on to say, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And this is the point where it does actually come from Isaiah. So now if you would, flip over with me to Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3. So Mark came out swinging. And so we would expect nothing less from him as he continues through this quote. Because that first Exodus mention is mind-boggling. It's mind-boggling. He references a messenger. And that messenger then points to the one who is coming, who is the true antitype, the true fulfillment of what Exodus was about. Now he's coming to Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3. It reads, A voice is calling, Prepare the way for Yahweh in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. So there's two things going on here. First, if we know that John the Baptist was here to be the voice calling, prepare a way. So he's the messenger. So once again, we see Mark alluding to a messenger, someone calling, prepare the way. We know he's then going to fulfill that. We're going to talk about that in just a few minutes. Mark is going to immediately, he doesn't even bat an eye, he just goes John the Baptist. We're going to see that here in just a minute. 
And so if Mark is saying the messenger is coming for Yahweh, and John the Baptist goes, Christ is coming, Mark is equivocating Jesus to God and Yahweh in the Jewish mind. So Mark says the messenger is coming to tell you Yahweh. Prepare the way for Yahweh. This is a fulfillment of Isaiah 40 and verse 3. The Messiah is coming. But he also picked this point here not only to give Christ the authority of Yahweh, to equivocate him with God himself. He then starts the, the most beautiful prophecy of the Messiah, the, the best three chapters in almost all of Scripture on the prophecy of the Messiah is Isaiah 40 through 43. And so if you continue reading those next three chapters, you see the beautiful announcement of the Messiah and what he will do when he's here in Isaiah chapters 40 through 43. <coughs> Does it now make a little bit more sense how it is that the church ignored Mark for centuries? What an amazing writer he is. The next portion of Mark chapter 1 goes on to say, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So now he's adding on. This voice is crying in the wilderness. He's crying in the place of redemption. We're going to talk about that here in a moment. Wilderness is in each one of these as well. But make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. That comes from Malachi chapter 3. Turn there with me if you will. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. So again, Malachi leaves off, leaves this, this Old Testament, leaves the Old Testament off as the last book. Malachi is summarizing and, and completing the Old Testament, and then God is silent. There are no prophets for 400 some odd years between Malachi and John the Baptist. And then John Baptist is going to come in, and we're going to talk about this in a minute. Don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but he's going to come in as the last Old Testament prophet. This is the second Elijah. He's coming. He's fulfilling the idea of Elijah coming back. Christ will tell us that later on in Mark. And so naturally, Mark's going to point back to Malachi to let us know. In Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1, it reads, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come in his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says Yahweh of hosts. There's going to be a messenger. And it's the messenger of Yahweh. It's the messenger of God. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Who is that talking about? Christ. The messenger is announcing God is coming. The messenger of the covenant, who's the messenger of the new covenant? Christ. Who implements the new covenant? Christ. And if you continue to read through here, Malachi goes on to say that essentially this messenger of the covenant, this person that this original messenger is announcing, comes to purge the temple, to purify the priests, to set up the true temple. Selah. Be silent and meditate. Think about that for a minute. Malachi, by Mark's referencing of Malachi, he is predicting 
He's bringing to the Jewish mindset that these eight verses, or this, this quote, excuse me, from Malachi, this, this assimilation of Old Testament prophecies, he's now saying that the, the one that John the Baptist is announcing about is going to be the one that purifies the priests. What are, what are we called now, saints, in Hebrews? We are priests. What does Paul call us, saints? The temple of the Holy Spirit. What does Christ do on His time on earth? He purifies the temple. Not only physically, but by redemption through His blood and giving of His life, He purifies and redeems us, the true church. The fulfillment of the, 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 the type of the Old Testament is the anti-type. We are now here and redeemed. And Mark is saying, this is who's coming. This is who John the Baptist, who I'm about to identify as this messenger, is coming to tell you about. That is a beautiful way for someone to open up these Old Testament prophecies and say that Jesus, the one that I just said is the Son of God, is the fulfillment of so much more than you can imagine. And now that we think about this prophecy being laid out, Mark has done a good job of this. And you can turn back to Mark if you'd like. We'll be back there now. Mark has interwoven these beautiful expectations of the one whom the messenger is going to announce. I want to explain what the messenger means in the culture of Mark. The messenger at the time of Mark is someone who was sent out before dignitaries or kings, and they were literally required to inspect every bit of the road that the king or dignitary would be traveling on to ensure there were no potholes or blocks, to ensure the road was safe. The Roman roads were pretty good shape back then, but there were still people that would try to destroy them or, or injure them. And the dignitary, we wouldn't want his, his cart to be rocked or his horse to stumble. And so this messenger would go out and he would, he would go out, especially through the wilderness areas where people wouldn't be. Where does John the Baptist live? You guys see where this connection is coming from? And they would find dining and rest accommodations and make sure that these dignitaries knew where they were going to stay, what they were going to eat. And then... The most important of all is he would organize and prepare the people to receive the dignitary. They would prepare them to receive and know who he is, to give him the proper welcome that he should have. That was the job of the messenger in those days. So all of these references that we've, we've looked at here that Mark is giving us gives us so much to unpack but the thing I want you to walk away with is Mark intends to show that Yahweh is seen in Jesus of Nazareth. He intends to show beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is God. And he wants us to understand that what he's about to tell us is the good news of salvation by referencing Isaiah. And by getting right down to business and packing in so much here, we get to see that the prophets have spoken of the one that is the Messiah, the one that will purify his people into a new priesthood, and the one that will lead these people in the new exodus. He is packing so much in for us to see. This is who we're, who we're united with, saints. This, this, is, this is who we are, are united in redemption to, which is Jesus the Christ. We are part of, of the body of the Son of God. But I think there's another point of application that I want us to, to think through here. This messenger 
is not the dignitary. John the Baptist, as, as amazing as he is, and he, and he does, he lives, we're going to look at it, he lives a life of, of uh, asceticism uh, to the point where people actually built their entire lives and practices of following God after him in later centuries. He only eats locusts, which were allowed by Jewish law. He dresses like Elijah with his belt and his camel's hair. We'll look at that here in just a minute. Elijah does all these, I mean, excuse me, John the Baptist does all these things, and he's fulfilling the prophecy that Elijah would come again. And so it's really easy to get caught up in how amazing John the Baptist is. Isn't it? And some of the people, if you look at the other Gospels, that elaborates more on what John said, some of the people got caught up following John. They got caught up following John. John is just the messenger. John came to prepare the way for Christ. Now I want to ask you a question. How many of us get caught up with messengers of Christ today instead of looking to Christ? How many of us get caught up with our favorite podcaster or our favorite online theologian or our favorite ministry? or our favorite obscure debater? How many of us get stuck on the messenger instead of the message? How many of us get stuck on our pastors? I would caution us here because Mark, as you can see, yes, he's using the messenger, but what is he truly pointing to even by talking about the messenger? Christ, throughout he drew these explanations out of the Old Testament because the message is more important than the messenger. The dignitary is more important than the herald. The king is more important than the servant. And we lose perspective on that sometimes. So that's the application I want us to walk away with. Mark talks about the messenger as we should. There needs to be messengers. That's the guidance and, and setup of God and how his church works. But we cannot and must not get caught up in the messenger, not the message. It's been said already in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 1, the groundwork is in place that will define and characterize Jesus' bearing throughout the gospel, in which Jesus un unpretentiously but authoritatively unites his way with God's way, his work with God's work, his person with God's person. We get to lift up Christ in the gospel of Mark and see him for what he is, the Son of God. So we've looked at the prophecy, and we've seen that the prophecy was made, but now John is going to turn right around and say the prophecy is fulfilled. So he's going to show that the prophecy is fulfilled in verses 4 through 8. I'm going to read those again for us. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the region of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. And John was, clo John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt, around his waist, and was eating locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching, saying, After me, one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Remember earlier when I mentioned that Mark is quick-paced 
He doesn't beat around the bush or add any extra words. He expects his reader to understand by him saying John the Baptist in the next sentence as he begins, that the very fulfillment of the prophecies he just talked about for a messenger is seen in this man. Here's the messenger. John the Baptist did this. He is, he is immediately turning around and telling you that this is being fulfilled in John the Baptist. But there's another aspect here that I want us to, to think through in the prophecy being fulfilled, and that is by God sending a messenger before, before Christ, we have yet another sign that God initiates redemption and salvation for man. God sent the messenger. We were, we were, we were sitting here as Gentiles, not even knowing we needed a messenger, let alone the king that's coming after the messenger. And so God initiates salvation in sending the messenger to prepare the way for Christ. So John being the last Old Testament prophet, it's God's been silent for 400 years, as I mentioned earlier, and now there's a messenger come that has come and is preaching repentance. Now think about the wilderness that John is in. This is another antitype of the type of redemption process that God used for Israel throughout their history. God used 40 years of wilderness, travel in the wilderness, living in the wilderness, to bring about the redemption of the nation of Israel, right? He brought them out of Egypt into the promised land. So that's 40 years of a redemptive process in the wilderness. Doesn't it make sense that God would come back to Israel in the form of Christ coming and begin again in the wilderness? This would have had symbology for the, for the Old Testament Jew. They knew what wilderness meant. This is the place of redemption. This is where redemption begins. Now I want to take a second to address kind of the elephant in the room of this passage. I've heard this conversation before. I've been part of this conversation before. Verse 4 says, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. I've had people come and tell me, see, that's how awesome John is. He can forgive sins. That is not at all what that passage says. We have to understand the context of who the messenger actually is. If we think about Moses as the messenger, right? The messenger that, that came to lead the nation of Israel out. He implemented a ritual cleansing for the cleansing of the people, did he not? He implemented the idea of washing with water so that they could go into the temple, into the Holy of Holies. Now, there were other aspects of that that was involved, absolutely. There was blood sacrifices and all the things that went along with that. But part of the, the, the core basis of Jewish cult practice, which that word just simply means the practice of a religion, the cult practice of the Israelites was that they washed religiously. In fact, to show you how extreme they went in their washing with water, when a scribe was translating the Old Testament and they got to the word Yahweh, they would write it with the reed, Yahweh, Y-H-W-H in Hebrew. They would write it and they would throw the pen away, leave the room, take off their clothes, wash, put on fresh clothes, go back with a fresh pencil and continue writing. Every time they got to the word Yahweh, they would wash themselves. Do you think that washing with water was ritualistically important to a Jew? Ritualistically, there we go. Yes, it was. John is simply acting within his office as the last Old Testament prophet saying, repent. What did God tell them through every prophet of the Old Testament? 
them being the nation of Israel. Repent. You're not following my law. Repent. So John is here simply completing the process of the Old Testament prophets, which all of them pointed to what? Christ. John is fulfilling the role of the Old Testament prophets. This is not a baptism of forgiveness of sins like we think of in Christ. This is the last Old Testament prophet saying, repent and cleanse yourselves. Prepare for the judgment of God himself. So this isn't about two different ways of salvation. This isn't about John the messenger being equal to Jesus the Christ. Yes, we can look to John and learn from him, but he is not Christ. The messenger is not the message. Now we know that John is the fulfillment of the, the prophecy that Elijah would come again. Jesus says that in Mark 9.13. You want to write that down? Jesus comes and says, I say to you that Elijah has indeed come, and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. This is in reference to John in context there. So we know that Jesus saw Elijah, or excuse me, John as the, the uh, fulfillment of the prophecy of Elijah coming again. But John, in calling for this repentance, if you, if you very quickly look down, just scan your eyes down to verse 8, John knows that this baptism that he's preaching isn't worth anything compared to Christ. Because in verse 8, we're going to talk about this more shortly, but in verse 8 it says, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John knows his position. He knows he's not the message. He knows he's not the Christ. His baptism is simply anticipatory. He's simply saying, Christ is coming, prepare yourselves, cleanse yourselves, we're going before Yahweh. It was a call for all the Jews to follow the law of God and be cleansed according to the Jewish customs for God's judgment and to prepare for Yahweh's coming. And that's how the Jews, uh, the Israelites accepted the covenant of God is by purification. There's so much tied up in that. In fact, Josephus, another ancient historian, spoke about John the Baptist and said that John exhorted the Jews to lead righteous lives, to practice justice toward their fellows and piety towards God, and so doing to join in baptism. It was simply a symbol of the cleansing of the Jewish people. But that's not all about John that seems a little bit different than what we might normally think of people living in that time. As, as odd as, as it may seem um, to us to think about people eating uh, bugs and, and things, that was odd to them too. That was not normal behavior. Him living in the wilderness by the Jordan River, if you've ever seen the Jordan River, especially the part where John was was just south of the Sea of Galilee, so it was very muddy. Um, it was dirty. Um, the Sea of Galilee, or excuse me, the Jordan River was known for its floods, so it would pull all, all kinds of debris. If you've ever seen a picture of the Jordan River, it's actually very hard to get to. It's got huge, steep banks um, where the river rushes from floods that come through um, and, and wash out. This was not a pleasant place. The wilderness never is. But not only did he put himself in the wilderness at God's behest, but he also ate bugs and honey. The honey I could probably get behind, but the bugs would take a lot. But not only did he eat those things, but he also dressed in camel's hair. Anybody ever felt a camel? They are not comfortable. Their hair is not soft. It's not designed to be warm. It's itchy. Think of wool on steroids. It's not comfortable. And then he tied his waist with a leather belt, which is a sign back to 
the Old Testament prophets. Zechariah 13.4 references the garb of Old Testament prophets. Elijah specifically is, designed, excuse me, is described in 2 Kings 1.8. And they said to him, he was a hairy man with a leather girdle girded about his loins. And he said, is Elijah the Tishbite? So 2 Kings 1.8 is a descriptor of Elijah specifically, and John is, is representative of that, even down to his dress. Not only does John represent Elijah because of the way he dressed and where he lived, but John, throughout his life, chastised Herod Antipas to the point where he killed him. Not unlike Elijah chastising King Ahab to the point where Ahab and Jezebel wanted to kill him. The similarities are uncanny. So now we know, we've established that John is the last Old Testament prophet. He's coming as the second, the fulfillment of the second Elijah. And then he says in verse 7, and he, John, was preaching saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This messenger knew his position. He knew who he was and what his directive was. His humility is clearly seen here. And think about the crowds. It says all of Judea was going out there. Now, all doesn't always mean all, every single person, right? How many times have we had that discussion? This is not saying that every single person from Jerusalem and Judea came out, but it's saying a lot of people, all people, right? All kinds of people came out to John. So John is in the wilderness. He's surrounded by this crowd of people. This is, this is to the Jew who came out to see him. This was God finally speaking after 400 years of silence. 400 years of silence and now God is speaking. This would have been a big deal. And yet John looked to Christ. John says again, After me one is coming who is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandal. The lowest job of the lowest servant in, the, in any house of that time was to untie and touch people's feet. Feet were seen as the most disgusting part of the human body. That's why their tables were designed that you would actually eat at a table low enough that you could sit on your front and your feet would be back away from the table. It's called reclining at the table or they would sit sideways and the feet would be way away from the table. The feet was the most disgusting thing culturally in that time. The reason being is because they wore sandals everywhere and there was every road was covered in um, manure of different animals, dust like you wouldn't believe, cuts on their feet from the rocks. This was not a pleasant experience. And yet John says, I am so lowly, even as the messenger of God, even as the last Old Testament prophet, even as the one who's come to prepare the way for the king, I am nothing compared to him. And that's a good object lesson. Again, I want to lift up Christ to you, but there's still other things that we can learn do you have that kind of humility when you compare yourself to the Christ? Do you see yourself as completely unworthy? Do you see all of your, all of your good works as nothing? 
because he baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Think about what John's saying. I'm baptizing with repentance. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, but it's nothing compared to the work of Christ. How do you view yourself before the Christ? And then John is going to wrap up here by saying the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophets, Malachi, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and on and on the list goes. The fulfillment of the Old Testament prophets will come because all of them said that God will pour out His Spirit on His people. Unequivocally, every Old Testament prophet that pointed forward to Christ said that God would pour out His Spirit on His people. And John is coming to say, this is the word baptizo. We're all Baptists in here, and we know that means to go under. Put him under the water. Baptizo means immersion. John is saying that Christ is coming to immerse His people in His Spirit. That is a bold claim for a Jew to make that this man, this person that I'm saying is coming, is going to be equal to Yahweh to be able to pour out His Spirit. But that is exactly what John was claiming. That this person coming after me, that I am so unworthy next to, that I can't even touch His feet, is coming to pour out the Holy Spirit. He is going to immerse you in His Spirit. After just setting up all the things that he did, Mark now gets to record you know the one that was going to lead the new exodus that the messenger was coming from? You know the one that was, that was referenced as the messenger for the Messiah? You know the one that, that was coming to purify the priests, to set up the, the, the priesthood of the believer to purify the temple? The, one who's, the messenger that was coming, it's John. And even that messenger said that he's unworthy next to him and that he will pour out the Holy Spirit. Guys, the Messiah is here. Mark is just waving a big, big red flag. Guys, the Messiah is here. He's here. It's the Son of God. This is the good news. So as we think about the application here for this second point, I want to hold Christ up for you so that you can revel in what He is. Christ supersedes the old way. The baptism supersedes the, the ritual cleansing. John made an impact on the people as he was sent to, to, to do. The other Gospels record him chastising the religious leaders. But he is a shadow of what's to come. Now it came very, very quickly for him as a prophet. The other Old Testament prophets had, didn't get to see it. They didn't, they didn't know the fulfillment. John was blessed to be able to see that. But John had the privilege of being the messenger that prophesied the one sent by God. But he's only the announcer. His baptism was not sufficient, but simply the precursor. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the one that has come to fulfill the law and the prophets. If there's nothing else you take away from today's message, take away this. The shadows are not the substance. Devin made this point very clear last week. The law has a point. And its point is to point to Christ. That's the point of the law. It's no longer needed. The shadow is not the substance. The prophets are not the Savior. They were all pointing to one specific thing. Jesus of Nazareth is who we look to. Yes, John is amazing to see. God used him. 
Yes, the prophets are phenomenal to read. God used them. Yes, the Old Testament needs to be dug into, but it needs to be dug into so that we understand who Christ is. So I want to raise him up to you and say, look to the substance. Stop looking to the shadows. Look to the king. Don't look to the messenger. Look to Christ. Don't look to those who preach about Christ. In conclusion, I want to to wrap up with the, the goal of preaching through Mark. My goal in preaching through Mark is to hold Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as Mark calls him, up high, so that we might gaze upon his majesty and beauty and learn more about the one that came to save us than we have ever seen before. And it's going to be quick. It's going to go fast. Mark is very quickly paced. He uses immediately, just just look down through here. He says immediately over and over and over again. He says it, what, two or three times in the next four verses that we'll tackle next week. John is not beating around the bush. And neither will we. And even though Mark's intro here is, is of John is shorter than the other Gospels, I, I think it in no, no less way carries with it the immensity of God's power. It's on display from the exodus of Israel, through the prophet Isaiah talking about the Messiah coming, through Malachi saying that there is one coming who would purge and cleanse and redeem the priests, to John the Baptist saying the messenger is here, and baptizing him, which we will see next week. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, it is such a privilege to see you work throughout redemptive history. For us to walk through the Old Testament and and see, as Mark did for us here, to see your work in each of the prophets that you have so graciously given to us over the ages. That Christ, you are in fact the one who leads us on the new exodus. You are, in fact, the Messiah that came to forgive us our sins and to give us the good news of salvation. You are, in fact, the one who came to purify the temple, your new temple in your body, the one who came to redeem the priests and purify them. As we are your priests, Lord, we are dependent solely and utterly on you, and I thank you for the glimpse into your sovereignty, the glimpse into your glory, and I pray that it impacts us this week. In your holy name I pray. Amen.